1: Things could really go either way because of this dilemma that Hezbollah faces. This should be the moment to do what they've always said they were going to do, but also they've got a lot of problems to to deal with at home, so maybe they won't.
2: Many of the children I did speak to were incredibly homesick and would rather just return to Ukraine, but regardless, they were in a safe place and could ultimately sleep at night without the constant threat of missile attacks until October the 7th number of Bedouins
3: were taken hostage. And to me, this speaks volumes to just how indiscriminate the Hamas attack was.
4: I'm David Knowles, and this is Battle Lines. Israel, we are in battle. Not in the not in Terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on
0: others.
4: Like, every place I go, I go run away, and I just find bombs, and I find
3: dead people. And, like, maybe one day I'll end up like them, but it's a really scary
2: thing for me.
4: People telling me that, you know, mostly this is about Hamas, but they're also angry with absolutely everybody.
2: I'm begging the world to bring my baby
4: back home. It's Friday, the 3rd of November. In this episode of Battle Lines, I speak to Defence Editor Daniel Sheridan, Middle East Correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva, and Senior Foreign Correspondent Sofia Yan. Danny speaks about the Israeli forensic teams searching through ash as they look for teeth and bones to identify victims of Hamas. Sofia takes us inside her investigation into Hamas' assets in Turkey and Natalia explains her reporting into the experiences of the Bedouin living in Israel. A warning, this episode contains graphic language that some listeners might find distressing. I started by asking the team to round up the most important stories of the past week. Well, thank you so much, Natalia, Danny and Sophia, for your time again. Can we talk a little bit about the major developments, the major news over the past week? And Natalia Vasilieva, would you start?
3: Yes, obviously, we're still in the middle of an Israeli ground operation in Gaza. It's been going on for almost a week. I mean, there are some videos, there are some reports around what's going on. But overall, the fog of war is quite thick. The Israeli government has made it clear that it wants to decapitate Hamas, as one of government officials has called it. But We still have no idea if there's a plan to gain control over the territory and stay there or sort of create a buffer zone, as many have suggested. What we know at this point, and a lot of this comes actually from the Gazan side, from social media posted by locals living in Gaza, we see that the troops went quite far. They are in the north. There is a movement of troops going east to west, basically from Israel to over the Mediterranean Sea and if you look at the map there is suggestion that the Israeli troops might be moving in deep into the Gaza strip with an eye of cutting off the north of the Gaza from the rest of the area. This is what we've been seeing. The casualties are mounting on both sides. There are also casualties now on uh, the Israeli side in terms of soldiers. Our colleagues from the Telegraph are going to a funeral of one of the first soldiers who were killed inside Gaza. So obviously, we're going to see more of that. Something that really caught my eye this week, and I think it was very much in the news, and it was a profound shock for for many, that was an Israeli airstrike on the Jabali camp. When people say camp, when they say refugee camp, they have an idea that this is basically an area somewhere in the field with camping tents on it, that definitely this is not what it looks like. This looks like a neighborhood, a regular neighborhood with regular buildings. We call it the refugee camp because this is where a lot of Palestinians who were displaced from their land around the time of the creation of the state of Israel in 1948 were moved to. So those people have now lived there for generations and they lived there thinking that it would be a temporary solution, but they still do. So uh, it's still called a refugee camp. It's a very cramped area. I've seen it being described as one of the densest populated areas in the world. Uh, we're talking about multi-story buildings. A lot of them obviously didn't have any planning permission and, and, the, and the construction quality is quite bad. So imagine that if you're dropping aviation bombs on it, obviously the destruction is going to be quite bad. We saw striking images from Jabalia on Tuesday showing large-scale destruction. It was quite interesting this time. The IDF actually took responsibility for the airstrike because all of the while we've heard the Israelis saying that they're not targeting civilians specifically. This one was an easy a civilian neighborhood. The Israelis explained that saying that they were targeting a high-ranking Hamas commander and his entourage who were apparently hiding in tunnels underneath the neighborhood. So the Israeli army basically admitted to striking the camp, saying that you know they were able to take out the commander and destroy some of their communication networks and one centers, there was an initial report of fifty people killed in the Jabali camp. The most recent figures I've seen hundreds dead and missing. There's a lot about it we don't know. The pictures were quite striking. So, you know, one would imagine the civilian toll would be quite high. Another thing about Gaza I would like to mention is we're recording this podcast on Thursday. And on Wednesday, Wednesday was the first day when foreign nationals were finally allowed to leave Gaza. That's the first time since the war started that Egypt opened its border to Gaza. And several hundred, I think 300 people were allowed to leave Obviously, there are many more people who would like to leave right now. That's still unclear how that is happening. Now, what we have heard from the ground is every day, the authorities are going to be posting a list of people who've been cleared to go. For example, I just saw a list for today. It includes something around 600 names. Exactly 400 of them are US nationals. There's people from other nationalities, including Belgium, Mexico no one from the UK. It appears to be quite random. Obviously, there are many, many more foreigners who want to leave. So we will need to see how it goes. Obviously, right now it's a drop in the ocean. There's more aid going into Gaza. Now there are daily trucks with aid. At least this is something, obviously, this is a fraction of what Gaza used to receive and supplies before the war started. So yes, I think this is where we are at right now at this point.
4: Danny Sheridan, you've been looking in detail at the ground war and indeed the underground war as well. What can you tell us about the fighting on the ground between Israeli forces and Hamas?
2: Yes, so earlier this week, Hamas and Israeli troops had their first clash since the ground offensive began, and it came as part of an ambush from Hamas's network of tunnels in northern Gaza. I feel like we really need to appreciate how sophisticated these tunnels are, as it's kind of hard to envision them. But they are a 300-mile network of interlinking underground routes that took two decades to build. They have hidden entrances beneath schools, mosques, and houses and have lighting, electricity and rail tracks for transport. I remember reading somewhere a senior Lebanese official saying that Hamas could fight for between three and four months without the need to resupply because it has stocked the tunnels to the rafters with food, water, medication, hygiene, supplies, gas, you know, the list goes on. And this is all part of their narrative that it's bedding down for a protracted war, and it's planned this for some time, and it's ready to take on Israel. So during this initial clash in the northwest Gaza Strip, Israel defense forces killed several terrorists. They claimed to have spotted them exiting the shaft of a tunnel near the Arez crossing. Israel later said it believed the militants were attempting to cross the border into Israel for another surprise attack, which is obviously absolutely horrific to imagine. They also said troops on the ground were able to guide Israeli aircraft to strike two Hamas staging posts, which in turn killed several Hamas members. Hamas said it used small arms and anti-tank missiles against the armored convoy, Now, this all comes after Israel intensified its strike on Gaza over the weekend. It sent in troops and tanks on Friday night. Now, normally the tanks retreated, but this time they stayed, which was a clear expansion of Israel's invasion. Although they won't use the I word. And as an aside, Putin also won't use the I word and still doesn't. As you know, he uses special operations. So I think there's a whole different conversation to be had on why this word invasion is so problematic and why leaders try to steer away from it. Anyway, the ground assault resulted in almost total communications blackout. And that was really worrying for us as we're working with fixers in Gaza. And you just assume the worst when you don't hear from them.
4: Thank you very much, Jenny. Sophia Yan, could you give us your take over the last week on the major developments in the region itself in the Middle East?
1: Yeah, so this week, a really interesting thing happened. The Houthis, a militia that's backed by Iran and based in Yemen, claimed that it had launched a, quote, large batch of ballistic and cruise missiles, as well as drones toward Israeli targets, and that this was in response to, quote, brutal Israeli-American aggression in Gaza. So they said that this was in support, again, quote, in support of our persecuted brothers in Palestine. They threatened further attacks. Uh, There's a lot to unpack about the Houthis. They overthrew the government in Yemen. Would take an entirely separate pod series, perhaps, to discuss. But the one thing to really note about the Houthis is that in less than 10 years, they've amassed a lot of serious firepower. Israel before didn't really consider this group a threat, but that's begun to change. And they are part of this so-called axis of resistance, these different groups that Iran has backed over the years to threaten Israel in the hopes that this kind of thing would happen. You know, so the Hamas attacks occurs and that all these other groups that are based in countries that border Israel, that surround Israel, would then start to kick up a storm too. And so that's what you're starting to see happen. Israel hasn't confirmed that the Houthis made these attacks. Obviously right now it's not in Israel's interest to show what could be perceived as a weakness, but this is what's been going on. To a certain extent, Israel is still grappling from insecurity with these October 7 attacks. Hamas showed the world that maybe the Israeli military, maybe there is a way to poke holes in their defenses. So this is what's going on. There's support for the Palestinian cause. This has been a big pillar for the Houthis. And so they've been talking about this ever since those October 7 attacks. They've been talking in a big way. And so now this is their entrance into the conflict.
4: Sophia, do you see this as further destabilization or potentially escalation as well? How do you see it?
1: Well, you know, this is really interesting because, again, this is something that Iran, in their grand scheme and their big strategy for the region, this is something that they in many ways sort of had envisioned and hoped for, that this kind of domino effect, if you will, could occur. And so this is more stress, really, for Israel. They've got potentially more fronts opening up that they're going to have to deal with. This is coming from the south. Again, Lebanon to the north, they've already exchanged fire with Hezbollah, another group. Of course, there's Gaza. I mean, this is a lot, you know, this is Israel starting to be surrounded. But again, we'll see what happens going forward. Also, you have to remember these groups, even though they share a very similar goal, they are still separate groups. They have their own aims. They're in different countries. They've got their own political ambitions in their own ways for their own constituents. So it's not that they're always in lockstep. That's really uh, one thing that's important to remember. The other thing I wanted to raise is that there's been a lot of diplomatic activity in the region. Israel recalling its diplomats from Turkey, Jordan recalling its ambassador from Israel. Lots of high-level meetings in the region. The Iranian foreign minister, for instance, has been traveling around taking lots of meetings And one other point to make is that Cyprus has been exploring the idea of a sea corridor to send humanitarian aid to Gaza. Cyprus is an island nation in the Mediterranean Sea, and it's just situated to the northwest of the Gaza Strip. So this could be another way to get some relief and assistance in. One last thing I want to mention. This is interesting. Bolivia this week said it had broken diplomatic ties with Israel because of its attacks on the Gaza Strip. Bolivia before has cut diplomatic ties with Israel. They did this last in 2009 and didn't have a relationship with Israel again until 2020. So, you know, Bolivia is a small country. They're not necessarily so much engaged in the regional conflict, but it's a bold
4: move. Back in Turkey, you've been looking into Hamas's assets in the country. What were you looking for? What did you find? Tell us a little bit about your reporting here. Where were you traveling?
1: I went to the Turkish city of Bursa. This is the fourth largest city in Turkey, and it's the first capital of the former Ottoman Empire. So there's a lot of history there. It's a beautiful old city center. And in this city, there are five housing complexes, all of which were developed by this Turkish company, which was sanctioned by the U.S. for the first time in 2022. Since then, there have been two more rounds naming this company and, and people linked to the firm. These are people that the US has alleged are Hamas operatives. Some of them seem to have very good access to senior levels of Hamas. One of them was alleged to be the deputy to the person who runs Hamas's investment office. So, the US says that Hamas has this big global financial network that is funding its operations and helping to make its senior leaders very wealthy. And so this particular company in Turkey is one of those companies. And so you you see What it looks like on the ground, you know, I went and walked around these neighborhoods. These are towers, housing complexes, multi-story, new flats. They're on the market for quite a lot, actually. For Turkey, it's really very expensive. Some of them are as high as seven and a half million Turkish lira. That's 220,000 pounds. For rent at around 20,000 lira, that's about 600 pounds. And that's a lot for Turkey. So they're for sale, they're for rent. They've built these complexes over the years, and it's all there. Yeah, you know, I talked to some of the people who live in the neighborhood, some people who live in these complexes, and to them it's all news. You know, they've never heard this before that there's this potential link to Hamas. And for these people who own these places, you know, a lot of them said, Well, what can I do? I live here now, I bought the place, I didn't know about it. Is it even true? You know, they, they have all these questions, but also they're regular people living in these homes and it's their house. So it was a really interesting reporting trip, really, to go look at all of this, these physical assets that the U.S. believes are helping to finance and to fund what Hamas is doing.
4: Thanks so much, Safir. Would you put this alleged operation in some broader context for us? How else does Hamas operate in the world?
1: So companies like this, they're shell firms that allow the movement of money. It's hard to trace sometimes where things are going. These front companies, this is what the U.S. has alleged. But Hamas has found lots of other ways to funnel funds to support its activities. You know, there are stories about physically carrying cash and briefcases, things like that. They've gotten into using cryptocurrencies, transferring some money that way. There are charities around the world, many of which have been sanctioned too, that can bring in support for Hamas. They get, of course, friendly... Nations like Iran, who send over infusions at tens of millions of dollars a year, potentially. I mean, some of these figures, these are estimates. But of course, terrorist financing is not exactly, as you would imagine, the most transparent. It's very difficult to understand exactly how it all moves across borders and through different institutions. But there is a big support network, it seems, for people who are sympathetic for these causes. And they do spread through the region. There are people known in Turkey, again, some of whom have been sanctioned by the U.S., linked to this company I was looking into, and other firms in many other countries around here, even in Algeria, in Sudan, the United Arab Emirates. I mean, these are places where the U.S. has found reason to believe that there are activities that are supporting what Hamas is doing, financial activities supporting Hamas. So, you know, this is something that really spreads across the world.
4: Thanks so much, Sophia. Danny Sheridan, can I come back to you? You've been speaking to Jewish Ukrainian children who've been resettled in Israel because of the war in Ukraine. What's their reaction to this second war? Can you tell us a little bit about the children you met? Who are they? What are their stories?
2: So this was one of the more touching pieces I've done recently. It involved children who belong to Yumim, which is a Chabad home for Jewish children. In essence, the kids come from broken homes, a number of orphans, and the home works like a foster system where they take in children, feed them, clothe them, provide a roof over their heads and give them stability. So when Putin invaded Ukraine at the start of 2022, the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, organized their evacuation. Around 100 of these children were sent to Ashkelon in Israel, which is about eight miles north of the Gaza Strip. And they were adjusting to life in Israel. They were making new friends, although many of the children I did speak to were incredibly homesick and would rather just return to Ukraine. But regardless, they were in a safe place and could ultimately sleep at night without the constant threat of missile attacks until October the 7th, which led to them being uprooted once again to a place in central Israel. And your heart just goes out to them because these are little kids who are just having their lives turned upside down. You know, it's hard enough being taken away from the only country you've ever known and put somewhere else and try to create a new life for yourself and adjust. I know children are very resilient, but it will still be having some sort of underlying stress on them, whether they realise it right now or not. And that's why the home is providing them with weekly counselling sessions. Some children are actually having one-to-one sessions if they're presenting more severe traumatic symptoms. But they're just kids They really want to be getting on with their lives. And it just seems that it's constantly being interrupted through situations that are totally out of their hands. They have no control over. There was one teenage girl I spoke to who just said if she could pack her bags tomorrow, she'd go back to Ukraine. She doesn't care that it's dangerous. And and if anything, now that there's a war here, well, what's keeping her here? Why is Israel safer than Ukraine? And um, she was also talking about in Ukraine, they'd kind of become adjusted to if there was a missile attack, you know, if a siren went off, they had to run to a shelter. So she was caught off guard when being outside of the temporary accommodation they're at now. She was walking down the street and the sirens went off. And she said she panicked and didn't know what to do because she was in a new place. She was disorientated and didn't know where to run for safety. So she just had to throw herself on the ground and hope that she didn't get struck by an incoming rocket attack. She said it was really, really scary. And it's only now that she's, I guess, in the last week or so, learned exactly what she needs to do, learned where the shelters are, learned it's probably best not to go out by herself. You know, these are all things that you'd really hope a child didn't have to experience or go through. I think, like I said earlier, children are resilient and that was coming through. But what was also very evident when they were speaking was this sense of longing for Ukraine. They said, I asked them what they missed. And other than, you know, family members, it was things like the food and the nature and the climate they've gone from a place that's really cold in winter and experiences different seasons to a country that's always really hot. Anyway, it didn't feel like it was all lost speaking to them. They are surrounded by people who really care for them and are trying to make their lives as comfortable as possible here. But speaking to children of war really does make you sit back and reflect on all parts of society that are being impacted by this and how so many innocent civilians are the ones that that truly suffer.
4: Danny, can we go to another one of your stories? You've been speaking to some of the Israeli forensic teams trying to identify the victims of the Hamas 7th of October attacks. What did they tell you and what does their work look like at the moment?
2: Yes, so this was another horrific story. Earlier this week, journalists were invited down to Shura Army Base, which is in central Israel and basically has been made into this makeshift morgue. It's been nearly four weeks now since Hamas launched its gruesome attack on Israel and the bodies are still mounting. But the worst part of what was being described to us was how the work to identify human remains is increasingly difficult because so many people were burnt to ash. And the team that was speaking to us explaining the situation on the ground we're saying that they get presented with body bags and when they open them, they don't know what they're going to find. Is it going to be a limb? Is it going to be a fragment of bone? Or is it just going to be a pile of ash? And it's becoming increasingly common that these bags do just contain the burnt remains. And they describe how they have to dig through the ash in the hope of finding a tooth because that's the way that they can identify who these people are. These are experienced forensic officers that have spent their careers going to crime scenes and dealing with dead bodies, remains. And each one of them that we spoke to said that this is something that they have never experienced. And they say things like they'll just never be able to forget what they've seen and what they've had to sift through in order to identify people we were also taken to where the bodies are being kept. So there are shipping containers that are refrigerated and they are filled with body bags. They insisted on opening the door to show us inside. And what you see is just black and white bags. It was a really hot day when we were there. You know, you're just standing in the bright sunshine, no shade. And um, this really horrible smell starts to permeate the air. And they did say, we can't keep the doors open that long because we need to keep the bodies refrigerated. And I was reminded of when I first started reporting on the war in Ukraine and how it was considered really fortunate that it was so cold on the ground because the climate enabled the bodies to be preserved. Whereas what we're dealing with here is intense heat. The whole thing was uncomfortable to be at and There's been a lot of talk of beheadings, and one of the police officers said to us, he pointed to the top body bag on the left-hand side, said that contains a, a headless child. We have no way of verifying that, but I just wanted to put it out there that that is what we are being told. And then the officer said he doesn't understand why their accusations are being interrogated so much, he said that he feels like this is really unusual, that we are telling you what we've seen, and yet you, the media, are questioning if it's correct or not, which I think is a fair challenge by him, but also our job is to report, but do so whilst also conveying that What we are reporting is what we have been told as opposed to what we have seen with our own eyes. And I think it's important never to just report as fact when you might not have actually seen the essential component that is being explained to you. Anyway, like I said, it's been nearly four weeks since these attacks happened and bodies continue to come in each day. We've been told that 826 bodies have been recovered so far and that of them 732 have been buried but let's not forget 1400 people were killed so this is going to continue for some time and the team work round the clock they said they they pulled triple shifts they're working 24/7 to get it done they're exhausted but time is against them because of what i said earlier regarding the climate they need to be finding these human remains as quickly as possible they don't have time to take weekends off to work a regular shift so anyway yeah it was it was incredibly harrowing going down there and I've written about it in more detail so hopefully readers can go away and take a look at that but it's grim it's um not pleasant to read about but then like so many of these things it's important to report it
4: Thank you very much, Danny. Natalia, can we come back to you? You've been speaking to some of the Bedouin in Israel. Before we go into your story, for those of us who don't know, could you just explain to us who are the Bedouin? What's their history and what's their place in contemporary Israel?
3: Bedouins are traditionally a nomadic or a semi-nomadic people who live not only in present-day Israel, but traditionally Bedouins was spread out all the way from Saudi Arabia to present-day Israel. Now, it's one of the biggest minorities in Israel. There's an estimated 200 to 250 Bedouins in Israel. I came across this quite extraordinary report by an Israeli government agency from two years ago in which they basically acknowledged they didn't even know how many Bedouins lived in Israel. And the only reason for that is because the community, which is these are essentially Arab Muslims, that community has traditionally faced discrimination. And what has been happening in the past decades is the state of Israel has tried to move them into towns, into villages. And a lot of the Bedouins struggle to stay on their ancestral land They would refuse to be moved. And because of that, there is a number. There's, in fact, several dozen unrecognized Bedouin villages. And because they are unrecognized, people don't have electricity. They don't have running water. And because of that, Israel doesn't even bother to count and they have no idea how many of them are. Now, if that community has a special place in Israeli society and now more than ever members of the bedouin community several of them told me completely unprompted they feel like they are between a rock and a hard place they obviously have their arab muslim identity on the other hand they are indigenous people of the present-day state of israel and they feel that they are israeli citizens and a lot of them told me that They're now being called traitors by Palestinians because they did not support Hamas. They did not support the attack. On the other hand, they are still viewed in suspicion in Israel because they're Arab Muslims. Now, Bedouins in Israel traditionally live in the Negev Desert, which basically starts to the east of the Gaza Strip. And there's a number of Bedouins were killed in the Hamas attack. A number of Bedouins were taken hostage. And to me, the, this, this story speaks volumes to the fact of just how indiscriminate the, the Hamas attack on October the 7th was, because obviously those people, they look more like people in Gaza. They wouldn't definitely look like your typical Ashkenazi Jew that would be you know, vilified by the Hamas leadership. But it just shows that Hamas had no idea and didn't bother to make difference between whoever they're killing or taking hostage on the Israeli land. And I spent a day in the Negev desert. We met a couple of families whose family members were killed in the Hamas attack. We spoke to a community leader who is now leading efforts to try and provide some help for, for the families of the victims and try and figure out what's happening with the hostages. Now, I, I met this completely fascinating person who is a retired, high-ranking IDF officer. He retired as a colonel. At the same time, he is very proud of his Bedouin heritage we found him in a traditional Bedouin house on the side of a Bedouin town. The whole setup, the whole living room with the traditional Bedouin carpets and low-seated couches was you know un- unmistakably traditional. But at the same time, he said that, you know, we're part of the Israeli society and we definitely don't want to be dragged out into this conflict. He spoke about the anxiety that the Bedouin community feels about how they feel that they don't belong either way. If you see portraits of the kidnapped people in London, elsewhere, I know that like people have been going around and plastering those portraits on lampposts. You are probably not going to see any Bedouins among them because relatives are quite anxious that it will somehow harm them in captivity. We met this family who lost uh, one of their sons to the Hamas attack. Young boy, twenty-six year old, who went camping on a Friday evening to the Mediterranean coast, very close to the Gaza Strip, and on Saturday morning, he called his dad and he told him that he saw gunmen coming out of the water and shooting everyone. And that's the last thing that the family heard of him. There's also a story of a bus driver who dropped off partygoers to the rave party close to the Gaza Strip. Now, this is the rave party that was attacked by Hamas early on Saturday, October the 7th. And at least 260 people were killed there. So the driver, his name is Abdel Karim Hassan. He works for a family uh, transport company. It's a large Bedouin family. They all own minivans and they drive around the desert in the area, shuttling tourists back and forth. So he had two clients. He dropped them off at the rave party on Friday night. He went to a wedding, had a lot of fun. There are pictures of him enjoying himself on that Friday night. And early on Saturday he got a call from those same clients asking him if he could possibly come and pick them up because it was around the time when Hamas started firing rockets on southern Israel. And I think it was just before the, the gunman arrived at the site. So he just got up into his van and, and and came. And we spoke to his relatives and I kept asking why did he go? Because obviously it sounded like it was a very dangerous place to go. And his brothers told me that he felt that it was his responsibility, that it was his duty for, for his clients because he left them there, essentially in the desert the night before. So he went and he was killed uh, along with the party goers. He was found in his car. There were bullet holes in the car. And actually, I was on that same road two days after the attack and we got there so early that, you know, it was around the time when it was fairly safe to go there. The military would allow civilians. but. It was day three after the attack. So there were some dead bodies of Hamas fighters um, lying in the fields, and there were some vehicles abandoned by the side of the road. Some of them were Hamas vehicles, but then there were a couple of civilian vehicles. And when I spoke to that family, I realized that I saw that black minivan with the bullet holes in the windshield. So obviously it's a huge strategy for, for the Bedouin community. So some people were killed in this manner. There were also Bedouins who were killed on the Kibbutzim. Some of them were farmhands. Some of them worked in security. So, yeah, I felt it's one of those untold stories of the current war. And as far as we know, at least there are are six Bedouins who were taken hostage. And if I remember correctly, 11 Bedouins were killed by the Hamas attack and seven more died from Hamas rocket attacks. And again, another story that I can talk about for hours is how the discrimination and neglect from the Israeli government is making Bedouins more vulnerable. For example, if you go to any regular Israeli town in the the south of Israel, you would see air raid shelters everywhere. You would see safe rooms and every single block of flats. But in Bedouin villages, there are no air raid shelters. And it's only now that the authorities are starting to pay attention. And there is another community organizer that we met who is actually pressing the government to send, at least now, to send those air raid shelters for Bedouin villages because they have nowhere to hide in the desert.
4: That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Natalia. Very quickly, a question from me. You mentioned how the Bedouins spoke about how they felt like they were between a rock and a hard place. Mm. And you spoke to a retired colonel as well. Did you get the sense that more Bedouin people are joining the IDF or support the IDF? What's your sense there?
3: Well, it's not an entirely new phenomenon. There are Bedouin battalions. It's a very prominent community in the Israeli army. A lot of them traditionally serve around Gaza because this is close to their ancestral land, So they would know the area like the back of their hand. And for example, the colonel that we spoke to, he served in the army for 22 years. He was involved in different security incidents along the Gaza border. There was one time when he was basically confronted by a suicide bomber on a pickup truck who rammed through the fence and and drove uh, across the border. So when I spoke to him about... The surprise attack and how come Israel was, caught completely unawares. He said that, you know, anyone who would be on the border would be watching out. So it's obviously a big lapse on the part of the Israeli government that that missed it. I'm not seeing any specific signs that more Bedouins are joining in. Again, right now, Israel in the middle of a war and there are reservists who are being called up. But a section of, of the Bedouin society does go to the army. So, yeah, that's not that unusual.
4: Well, thank you so much. Danny, Atalia and Sophia. Let's start to wrap up then. Annie, what will you be looking at?
2: I thought it would be interesting for listeners to just understand what it's like from my perspective reporting on the ground in Israel. I went to interview the family members of one of the hostages who was featured in the Hamas video released earlier this week. And I'm given a location, so we drive, it's an hour from where we're based. And just as we're about to go and sit down and and do quite an emotionally draining interview because you're sitting there opposite people who are crying and telling you how worried out of their minds they are about their loved ones who are being held captive by a terrorist organisation, missile sirens start going off and I have this app on my phone that tells you when there's an incoming rocket strike and it says critical, you have 30 seconds to get to a safe base. And then all the people around me start getting up, like chairs are scraping, it's frantic. I don't know where the safe place is by the way. So I'm just following this crowd of people and we end up going into this shopping mall that has a hallway and um, we wait there for a while and then we're told it's safe to come out, fine. Go to try and meet this family to do the interview. Siren goes off again. It's critical. You've got 30 seconds to get to a safe place. So you're back in the hallway with these strangers sitting there waiting it out. And um, there are mothers holding tiny children. There are teenagers, elderly people. It's just an incredibly stressful situation to be operating in because you then come out of that scenario and go straight into an interview with someone. This happened to me earlier in the week. I was just trying to buy a coffee and a a siren goes off. I actually couldn't hear it. And the person sending me my coffee said, you need to go find a safe place. And again, I just had to follow strangers into a hallway and wait it out. I think that the movements around what we're reporting isn't often conveyed in our pieces. But I think it's important for people to know that kind of side of what it's like reporting on the ground because... It's a highly demanding space to be in. And I'm just so grateful that there are people that are willing to sit down and talk to me in these incredibly stressful times. The family of the hostage might not have wanted to come and talk to me, given that a siren had just gone off. They might have thought, oh, sod it, we just want to go home and be somewhere safe. But they respect the media and understand the importance of getting their situation their story out there and so there is a real collaboration between the press and those affected by this war despite the really challenging circumstances that everyone is operating in but as for me you know I said this before when I've reported in Ukraine that I'm lucky enough to exit a war zone when I feel like the time has come and, and the time has come to me. I've been here 16 days now and I know when I need to get out. And unfortunately, that's a privilege I have that Israelis and people in Palestine don't have. So I feel really grateful for all the people that I've spoken to that have shared their stories with me. And I won't stop reporting on this when I'm in London, but I will just be doing it from a different base and I'm sure I'll be back. It's also a privilege on my behalf that people are willing to tell me their stories because it's harrowing for them to have to relive it. And I'm just grateful that they entrust in me to be able to put their story out there into the public.
4: Thank you so much. Looking to the next week, what kind of stories will you be following? What should our listeners be paying attention to? Sophia. Yeah.
1: So, as this episode is coming out of Battle Lines, there are two things that are going to happen on Friday that are very important. The first is that the leader of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, is due to give a speech, these would be his first remarks since the attack on the 7th of October. And everyone's really wondering what he's going to say. Will he or won't he? Is he going to call for greater involvement by Hezbollah in the war? Or is he going to say and explain why they haven't so far and why they won't? Hezbollah is a militant group in Lebanon that's also very prominent in domestic politics. And in advance of this speech, they've been releasing these short clips on social media of their leader. They're very cinematic. It's got this grand music. It's it's like this movie preview, almost teasing this speech. And so This is really a moment where things could change by a lot. Hezbollah, though, is really dealing with this dilemma. This group, they've built their identity, going against Israel, standing for Palestine. This should be a really prime moment for Hezbollah to act, but they need to rebuild their own legitimacy. They've lost some aura, some edge in recent years for many different reasons. And for Lebanon, too, it's a terrible time to get this country into a major war. Lebanon's grappling with a very serious economic situation right now. Hezbollah getting involved could also tip the scales and push the U.S. to become embroiled in this, even more so. Now, Hezbollah, of course, has already exchanged some fire with Israel. So in some sense, they are already involved. But they have been restrained in their response. They haven't done the sort of big shock and awe that they seem to be capable of. They're often described as the world's most heavily armed non-state actor. There are a lot of experts who are hoping that this is a sign that Hezbollah will not want to get more involved, that they won't escalate what they've done so far. They won't escalate their operations. The Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has also already warned Hezbollah, saying that they'd be making, quote, the the mistake of its life. If they were to escalate, but again, things could really go either way because of this dilemma that I discussed earlier about what Hezbollah faces. This should be the moment to do what they've always said they were going to do, but also they've got a lot of problems to to deal with at home. So maybe they won't. As Nasrallah is giving his speech, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is going to touch down in the region. This is his second trip to the Middle East in a month. His last trip was just days after the attack. He went to Israel and several other countries. And on that trip, it was a a very serious, delicate balancing act. He was trying to show U.S. support for Israel after the Hamas attack. He was trying to limit criticism in the region of Israel's coming military response, trying to get hostages out, held by Hamas in Gaza, trying to hold off an escalation of the conflict in the region, holding off actors like Hezbollah. A few weeks later, These are all still big issues on the table. The one difference being that Israel now has sent ground forces into Gaza. So Blinken's visit, really very prime moment. This trip's been teased by the U.S. government. They've talked about it, saying that Blinken is expected to reiterate... U.S. support for Israel's right to defend itself in accordance with international humanitarian law, but also to underline the need to minimize Palestinian civilian casualties to press for humanitarian assistance. That's how the U.S. government is characterizing this trip. So we'll see going forward what comes out of it.
4: Natalia, any final words from you?
3: Yeah, I think we might be approaching a crunch time in the Israeli ground operation here. It's been a week if you look at what the israeli public are saying what you're what you're seeing in in media the picture is quite conflicting some of the observers including retired military officers are saying that the ground operation is not proceeding as quickly as they would hope Others are saying that the troops appear to have moved much deeper than anyone anticipated. But obviously, it has been going for such a long time. The bombing campaign has been going for such a long time that there's a feeling that very soon Israel might be in a situation when its Western allies would be demanding a ceasefire and they would be demanding some sort of an end to hostilities. U.S. President Joe Biden called for something he called a pause in the war between Israel and Hamas. He didn't give any details, but I think it's very indicative of where the wind is blowing. There was also this editorial in Israel's main audits newspaper, which said that the forces, the Israeli forces, appear to be gaining ground. And Israel still has some kind of international legitimacy for its actions inside Gaza, but, but time is running out. So it looks like we might be approaching a crunch time here. Like what Israel does next? Is it the time to stop and negotiate the release of hostages? So I would also be looking to Friday because what just a couple of days ago, we had two Israeli hostages released by Hamas. It's quite possible that the countries that have been mediating between Hamas and Israel, like Qatar and Turkey and Egypt might come up with some sort of a deal, like they did come up with a deal for the crossing out of Gaza. So I'm going to be focusing on that.
4: Thank you so much, Sophia, Danny and Natalia. This week, I asked my colleague, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley, to give his thoughts on the history of the region. We thought it might be useful for listeners to aim for a 10-minute or so summary of the key points and developments and what we need to have in our minds when considering the current conflict in Israel and Gaza. Here's Francis Durnley.
0: Thanks, David. Now, as much as I would like to be comprehensive. I should caveat what follows by saying that given the sensitive subject matter, some people will no doubt be upset with certain omitted details. But my aim here is to offer the core timeline of events and the fundamentals of each. Those events that one often hears people refer to, but which may actually mean very little to many. One often hears people say this conflict has lasted forever regularly accompanied with a shrugging of shoulders and a sense of defeatism and despair. But it has not lasted forever. It is very much a product of the 20th century, forged and fought according to the central political and cultural currents of that time. This is a modern conflict. Nothing is predestined. Nothing is written. That said, it remains important to start before the 20th century, all the way back to 3,000 years ago in times recorded in the Old Testament, when the land that makes up modern-day Israel was dominated by a large Jewish community, a community that was, through a series of wars against the Romans and others, displaced, resettling in many areas, but especially in Central and Eastern Europe and in Portugal and Spain. For centuries, those displaced communities suffered perennial persecution. Even where they were permitted to live, they often had to obey strict rules, forced to live apart from the rest of the population. The term ghetto is a 17th century Italian word meaning foundry, because the first ghetto was created in 1516 on the site of a foundry in Venice. I've been there. As a result of this and the increased frequency of violent pogroms against Jews in the 19th century, a Jewish-led movement was born called Zionism, calling for a Jewish nationalist state. There had been proposals for a Jewish state prior to this in locations all around the world, not just the Holy Land. But with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the movement converged around the idea of returning to where they'd been displaced from thousands of years before. The Jewish faith practised that this homeland was Israel, a promised land gifted to the Jews by God, with Jerusalem its holy city. The problem was, of course, that in the preceding 2,000 years, Arabs, more regularly called the Palestinians in this context, had made it their home. To them, this land was also holy. For Muslims, the Temple Mount is where the Prophet Muhammad ascends to heaven. The first major event in this saga is the Balfour Declaration of 1917, a statement issued by the British government during the First World War expressing support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, in a land it controlled. There were several reasons for this, but one of the motivations was political. It was believed that American Jews would be more supportive of the Allied cause against the central powers and more inclined to join the fight if they made such an expression of support. Unsurprisingly, it was deeply unpopular amongst the Palestinians, but gradually Jews did begin to trickle back into the British-controlled territory in the years preceding the Second World War. But that war changed everything. What once was seen as a fringe issue became, as a result of the Holocaust, suddenly front and centre. For many, it justified the Zionist cause, namely that they were better served and safer to have their own state. Many, many Jewish people displaced within Europe by the war then moved to Israel. To try and reduce tensions between Israel and the Palestinians, the United Nations proposed a partition plan in 1947 that would divide Palestine into separate Jewish and Arab states, with Jerusalem under international administration. That plan was accepted by Jewish leaders, but rejected by Arab leaders, triggering the 1948 Arab-Israeli war on the day that the state of Israel was declared, when neighbouring Arab states launched a military campaign against the newly formed nation. The result, however, was a huge shock, victory for the Israelis, who felt they were fighting for their very survival. The war resulted in displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, a process known as the Nakba, or catastrophe in Arabic. Such was the violence, with many Arabs killed, that for many this was and is the origin of the ethnic cleansing charge often levelled at Israelis. Between 400 and 500 towns were depopulated and destroyed. This is one of the landmark events of the whole conflict, a foundational event in Palestinian identity. In the years following Israel's victory, it maintained a close alliance with France and Britain. In 1956, Israel, supported by France and the UK, attacked Egypt in response to the nationalisation of the Suez Canal by Egyptian President Nasser. It was a humiliation, especially for Britain, and the crisis only ended with the intervention of the United States and the Soviet Union, leading to a withdrawal of the countries who had invaded. Nevertheless, tensions between Israel and Arab nations continued to simmer. Then, in 1967, one of the most important events took place, the so-called Six-Day War, when Israel launched a preemptive strike against Egypt, Jordan and Syria, following weeks of heightened tensions and threats, resulting in a swift victory and the occupation of hugely significant territories in the present context, including the West Bank and East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights. These include the so-called occupied territories one often hears referred to in the news, with Israel seizing them in what it claimed was essential for defensive reasons, though for others this was used as a justification to seize more land. Seeking to avenge that brief but embarrassing episode, in 1973, on the Jewish holy day of Yom Kippur, Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack on Israel. The war initially caught Israel off guard, with Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir pleading with Western powers for support before the Israelis launched a successful counteroffensive. It was the anniversary of this war that was marked by the brutal attacks carried out by Hamas a fortnight ago. We then move from an era of all-out conventional war to one of revolt and desperate diplomatic efforts to solve the conflict and find a peaceful and lasting solution. The Camp David Accords of 1978, facilitated by US President Jimmy Carter, Egyptian President Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Begin, negotiated a peace agreement at Camp David, leading to the Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty of 1979. This marked the first Arab-Israeli peace treaty and resulted in the normalisation of diplomatic relations between the two countries. Increasingly isolated by their former Arab allies, the Palestinians in the occupied territories launched an uprising known as the First Intifada in 1987. Mass demonstrations, strikes and acts of civil disobedience aimed at raising international awareness and to try and get the Israelis to withdraw. This lasted until 1993, when secret negotiations between Israeli and Palestinian representatives in Oslo, Norway, resulted in a series of agreements aimed at establishing a framework for future relations. The accords included the creation of the Palestinian Authority and a plan for gradual Israeli withdrawal from parts of the occupied territories. They advocated for mixed control and aiming for progress towards a two-state solution, where a Palestinian state and an Israeli one could live side by side. The difficulty, of course, is that the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are not joined up. They are separate entities. And under the occupation, there were enclaves within them, with Jews building settlements and creating checkpoints and walls. In response to the continued occupation and lack of progress, a second intifada broke out in 2000, characterised by suicide bombings, armed confrontations, and Israeli military occupations. It lasted until 2005, when Israel unilaterally withdrew its military forces and dismantled its settlements in the Gaza Strip, aiming to ease tensions. Thousands of Jewish settlers were removed. As part of this, a democracy was installed in the hope that it would lead to Gaza adopting a more moderate path. It did not. Within a handful of years, Hamas had been elected into power, less moderate than others in the Palestinian cause, who were willing to acknowledge the existence of Israel and instead calling for the complete erasure of Israel as a state. This ideology, which many call genocidal, explains the brutality of their recent attacks. In response to rocket attacks, Israel launched several offensives into Gaza in the late 2000s and in 2014 to try and take out Hamas's capability. The casualties and damage were high, but it was believed then that Hamas had been humbled. In that context, diplomatic efforts resumed. In 2007, U.S. President Donald Trump instigated the Abraham Accords, signed between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain in September 2020, further driving a wedge for some between other Arab nations and the Palestinians. Controversially, it also officially recognised Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, a move that sparked international criticism, For Jerusalem was seen by many as a place that was vital to be separated from being entirely in one state or people's control. Broadly speaking, many would argue in the context of these accords and others in recent decades that the hardline Palestinian cause represented by Hamas had been increasingly isolated. Saudi Arabia was also in talks with Israel in an attempt to forge a better relationship. Experts believe that this may have been the major trigger point for the attack some weeks ago, as Hamas sought to stop this process of reduced tensions and rapprochement between Israel, Saudi Arabia and others. They felt that if they were to lose the support of other Arab states, it would be the death of their cause. They might well have been right. Hence the attacks by Hamas that started the present crisis. Hence the increase of tensions. Hence the violence spilling over, reigniting a conflict that has persisted for decades. A tragic story, seemingly with no end in sight, with implications not just for the region, but for the world.
4: Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine, the latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells.
1: Selling a little or a lot?